0: Reading this morning is from the book of 1 Timothy, uh, starting at chapter 2, verse 8. We're going to read until chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety. Adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to, is to be above approach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. This is God's word.
1: Uh, Morning, everyone. If we've not met, uh, my name is Matt Fuller. I'm the vicar here. And if you're here visiting um, or uh, fairly new, uh, this is a quirky passage uh, in a uh, current cultural climate. To turn to. So um, I hope you'll uh, work with me on this and um, I'm going to go through it perhaps a little more slowly, steadily, less of a sermon uh, perhaps than some. But uh, let's ask for God's help as we look at this together. A great God and Father, you're good and you're kind. And your love for us is deeper than anything we've ever known as we've sung already. So Father, as we turn to a passage such as this, um, for many of us, it raises all sorts of questions, maybe alarms. Father, help us understand your goodness and your kindness in speaking this to us and understand what it might look like for us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was about a year ago uh, that there was the horrific shooting at the primary school in Ilvalde, Texas, when 19 kids and a couple of teachers were killed, uh, and maybe you forget it, and maybe if you're a Brit, these things sort of pass you by a, a shooting in, in the U.S., so it's another one. But this was particularly wicked, I think, children, and um, memorable also because of the response, if you recall, of the police officers. So I was struck particularly by one headline, one um, uh, yeah, U.S. newspaper writer, that to do the right thing, you might have to die, and he observes in the article just some of the facts of the piece that seven police officers arrived at 11:35 in the morning they were telephoned six times from inside the school during the next hour and they didn't act eventually 12:50 an hour and 15 minutes after arriving at the school the police went in and killed the shooter But during that hour, he had taken the lives of 19 children and two teachers. And uh, in the article, the journalist quotes from the training manual for police officers in Texas. He quotes the line, First responders to the active shooter scene will usually be required to place themselves in harm's way and display uncommon acts of courage to save the innocent. I don't know how you should write that line in a manual. It is expected that you display uncommon courage. (laughs) It's quite a line to write. But the point is, in their training, by definition, they were meant to fight to protect the children, even if it cost them their lives. Now, presumably, if two police officers had died protecting the children, while tragic, they would have been celebrated, they would have been recognized as heroes, heroines perhaps, in the peace, rightly lauded for their sacrifice because we know it does take courage to fight and defend others. And presumably until we're in that scenario, none of us completely knows how we will act or behave. It takes courage to fight. In this passage this morning, and we're really just looking at chapter 2, 8 to 15, chapter 3 next time, but in our passage this morning, Paul writes, in line with the biblical pattern, that wants suitably qualified men to fight, guard, protect the church... That's what he's asking them to do, suitably qualified men to guard and protect the truth. And so we come to a passage such as this, and uh, none of us are perfect, but I guess it, we can fail in one of two ways and probably all lean in one direction or other. We can say, as we come to 1 Timothy chapter 2, well, I'm just going to ignore what it says. I, I see there's something there about the The qualified men taking a lead in the church, but I don't like it, and we could ignore it. Or on the other side of the, fall off the other horse on the other side and say, well, okay, there's something here about men, and, and so I'm just going to ignore what else the Bible is going to say, even in 1 Timothy, even to the church in Ephesus, about the ministry of women. And we want to hold both rightly, biblically together. But the bottom line of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that Paul wants the guarding of the truth, the authoritative public teaching of the Scriptures to be done by qualified, suitably qualified elders, men. Now, if you are joining us, 1 Timothy, we're working our way through uh, this letter that Paul wrote. It's dominated really by the theme that God is a saviour. God is a saviour, and so to get that message out to the world, the church must conduct itself rightly, acutely. The false teachers must be stopped, and good teachers must be raised up. Now, undeniably, within this letter, chapter 2 is the most disputed part, but you need to put that in context. This has been a disputed part of the Bible for the last 50 years. For 2,000 years, no one disagreed at all about what it meant, but in the last 50 years that consensus has broken a little bit, and it is a difficult word for some to hear. Can I just say briefly that amongst those who take the Bible seriously, chapter 2, particularly verses 11 to 15, there, there are sort of two views. Okay, let me just tell you that at the beginning. Either Paul is saying authoritative teaching of the Bible publicly is limited to qualified elders, or... He's wanting to rule out bad teaching. Now, I think it's best understood as the former. He's wanting to limit public authoritative teaching of the Scriptures to qualified men. Now, the other position, uh, some would hold it, and um, uh, sensible, godly people would hold another position. Okay? But um, probably the strongest case that Paul is just ruling out erroneous teaching. Uh, If you want to chase that down, Andrew Bartlett's book, Men and Women in Christ, is the most thorough explanation of that. I disagree with his conclusions. But he suggests that the issue that Paul is addressing here in chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, is one that comes up later in the letter, particularly in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, that in the church in Ephesus, there were some young widows, super wealthy, dripping in jewelry, and they were Manhunters looking out for husbands. And it's those particular group that Paul is addressing here in chapter two. That is Andrew Bartlett's explanation for what's going on here. It's not impossible. I think it very unlikely, given when you look at chapter four, verse three, we're told that part of the false teaching in Ephesus was that the false teachers are saying, you're forbidden to marry. So it'd be odd if on one hand, false teachers are saying, you mustn't marry. And on the other hand, they're desperate to get married. That seems illogical to my mind. There's a lot of conjecture there. So I do think Paul is saying here that the authoritative public teaching of the scriptures is limited to suitably qualified male elders. Let's work through it. And uh, we'll spend most of our time probably in 11 to 15, but briefly, we'll work through it like uh, in uh, under four little headings. First then, we're told that the men should fight for the truth. Chapter 2, verse 8, therefore, now in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, again, he said that God, if you were here last time, God is a savior who wants all to be saved. That is the disposition, that is the heart of the living God. Therefore, pray, pray that that would be the case. And therefore, verse 8, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and disputing. Pause. <laughs> Men fight for good and bad. It's extremely, uh, well, it's extraordinary stats. but if, when you look across the Western world, you, um, prison populations are remarkably consistent. So for what it's worth, in the UK, the prison population is 95% male. In the USA, it's 90%. In Australia, 92%. That is a very strange statistic, and it's incredibly consistent across the West. Men commit violence that lands them in prison. I don't suppose that women are less sinful than men. Perhaps their sins are not criminal, but that is an extraordinary number. The problem is that since the Garden of Eden, since Genesis chapter 3, since humanity rejected the Lord, men have fought for the wrong things. They've not fought to protect others. They've fought to get their way. In God's design at the beginning of the world, yes, the man was meant to fight to protect. Not to go on offense, but defensively protect. So, uh, family, we may have it. uh, Back in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and guard it. That was man's task before the woman even came along to work and guard it. And then you can trace those two verbs in parallel verses throughout the Old Testament. It's very striking. When you when the tabernacle, God's dwelling place representatively in the Old Testament is constructed, it is the Levites, the male priests who are told they're to guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work, to guard and to work. Later on, again, the, it's the Levites. You and your sons may guard as priests in connection with everything in the altar inside the curtain. I'm giving you the work. Guard and work, guard and work, guard and work. So from the beginning of creation, it's the job of the suitably qualified men to fight as guardians. Their strength is meant to protect others. In the New Testament, the strength is meant to protect the truth, protect the church. But that's true throughout the Bible, be it tabernacle, temple, church. Suitably appointed, qualified men are meant to do that. Even when you get to the end of the Bible, in uh, Revelation 21, the heavenly city is still built upon the foundation of Twelve apostles protecting, upholding the church. So throughout the scriptures, I mean, there's a very brief overview, but the men should fight for the truth. And so when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 2, it isn't a bolt from the blue. What? This is a surprise. It just cuts with the grain of how God has established the world. Now, alongside that second little thing, uh, Paul will say that the women should adorn themselves with good deeds. Now, do note the contrast here. If you don't see the contrast, it can end up being a bit silly. But verse 9, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, here's the contrast, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Do you see the contrast? You should be more concerned with godliness than bling uh, is essentially what he is saying here. The timeless truth is more concerned with inward qualities than outward appearance. So don't push it to silly lengths. He isn't saying wear sackcloth, um, never have your hair cut. He's of course not saying, what he's saying is elaborate hair and expensive clothes that could distract. So I think sometimes years ago. There was a young woman in the evening congregation here who was very wealthy. Uh, She'd inherited a lot of money. And she had a mobile phone made by Prada. She happened to be a a terrifically godly woman as well. But she just moved in social circles beyond most of us, just by nature of aristocratic wealth. Um, One day, uh, one of the staff just gently said, "I, I wonder if you realize people who don't know you so well and don't know that you are a Great. They just know you as the girl with the prada phone. Who's it? Oh, oh, that's the girl with the prada phone, isn't it? And and she said, oh, that's not great, is it? No. So she went out and got a brick. Um, no, she wasn't obliged to do that, but she just thought, I don't want to be known. It's just, I'd rather be known as the girl who's godly. Oh, that's the girl who's always serving. That's what I prefer. Um, and I, you know, I don't know to too many details. Some will remember, work out who it is. But uh, the, the the day she got engaged and had a diamond ring, which is basically the, the cumulative worth of every other ring in this building, I think, and then put on marigolds over the top of it to help go and clean up the loose downstairs. That's what I remember her for primarily. I mean, obviously ripped the ripped the gloves. This thing was, you know, <laughs> this thing made the Cohen all look small. But um, but do you see the contrast that is here? And in many ways, this is a liberating verse. I mean, not all can afford expensive clothes. Anyone can pursue good deeds. It's quite liberating. Now, you can read those first three verses and go, what? What are we talking about? So what does that mean? That that, that women are allowed to fight and raise their hands in disputing and, and men are allowed to put on really expensive clothes? No. As soon as you start talking about masculine traits and feminine traits... It's generalizations, you know. You can say, on average, men are taller than women. And obviously, you can res- respond, well, I know a woman that's taller than a man. We all do. And it doesn't disprove the fact that, on average, men are taller than women, okay? There are truisms, generalizations. Well, most of my friends couldn't be less excited about hairstyles, and, and I don't. None of my mates raise their hands and get into fights. I know. But broadly, he's saying that is the way we can tend, broadly. There will always be exceptions on average. Look, so the men should fight for the truth. The women should adorn themselves with good deeds. Third, the women are to let elders teach with authority. Let's slow down a bit here. Verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man, she must be quiet. Verse 11, a woman, footnote, could be a wife, yes. But while you have to make a choice in Greek, it's the same word, woman, wife, same as man, husband, you just choose, context tells you which way to translate it. Normally, if it's husband or wife, Paul will add their own, his own. And lacking that, it's much more likely that it's talking about women and men in general, broadly. Learning quietness now, that isn't silence. If you were here last time, we, we spent a bit of time on this. I was trying to do some preparatory work. But in chapter 2 and verse 2, all Christians are to be quiet in relation to the government. And that is a relational term. It isn't you're not allowed to say anything. It's a uh, not argumentative, not needlessly disputative. You can disagree, but how you do so matters. That is what is being spoken about here. Christians would want to live peaceful lives without dispute. It's the same word here. And so I think, Femi, if we've got it, the, um, the, the verse parallels a little bit like this. Uh, a woman should learn in quietness, she must be quiet. And in the middle, you've got these two uh, little clauses And full submission, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. I think, therefore, in that verse, submission is defined by not teaching or assume authority. That's what he's ruling out, that no matter how godly or brilliant or able, he thinks it inappropriate that in the gathered church setting, A woman should take leadership of the teaching. Teaching throughout 1 Timothy and indeed the second letter, 2 Timothy and Titus as well, it's the authoritative and public transmission about Christ. So you can chase that if you want. Chapter 4 verse 13, chapter 6 verse 2 in this letter, numerous places, 2 Timothy Titus. The teaching is the body of truth. It's defined. And here in 1 Timothy, that authoritative teaching is the preserve of the elders or overseers in chapter 3, verse 2, chapter 5, verse 17. Now, again, at this point, you might think this still feels a bit arbitrary. Maybe you think it feels unfair. But throughout biblical history, the task of guarding God's house the protectors of God's truth, are always male. Why? Well, Paul gives his reason here in verse 13. Why is this? Verse 13, for or because Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. What's he saying? His argument goes back to Genesis 2, before anything went wrong. And that while equal in value, Adam was given responsibility to guard the garden and protect God's law. Now, the authoritative public teaching in a church setting of men by women would contradict this principle in creation that the guardians of God's house are to be male. I take verse 14 as a consequence. This is what happens when you reject the creation order, when Adam was the guardian. Verse 14, this is what happens when men fail to act as guardians of the truth. If you go back to Genesis chapter uh, 3, Adam was there. Adam is stood next to Eve and does nothing to stop her listening to Satan. So I think his argument is, look what happens when men and women don't follow God's creation order. It all goes wrong when Adam failed to act. By contrast, verse 15, women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Uh, That's a slightly tricky verse. I think there's a technical point you can ask me about after this. The Greek definite article is there. I think it's better translated. You have a choice. You don't have to translate it always. Women will be saved through the childbearing. Equally equally valid translation. I think it makes much more sense in the flow of 1 Timothy. Women will be saved through the childbearing, i.e. of Jesus, if they continue in... Faith, love, and holiness with propriety. In that way, it's quite similar to chapter 4, verse 16, where Timothy is told, uh, Watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them. If you do, you'll save yourself and your hearers. If you carry on in the way you're meant to, for in your life and your teaching, you'll, you'll save yourself. I, you'll keep on believing. Chapter 2, verse 15, if the women carry on in faith and, and the appropriate behavior, they'll save themselves. I think it's parallel in what he's saying. So the women are to let elders teach with authority. Last little comment, and really I'm stealing from next week's sermon, but it helps here, I think. Last thing. The male elders are to be beyond reproach, chapter 3, 1 to 7. The point here is that not any man can teach while any woman can't. Only suit- suitably qualified men can be guardians, overseers, elders, synonymous words in the New Testament. Possibly without chapter 3, 1 to 7, chapter 2 is a bit unsettling. But Paul wants to be super clear. The only people you want responsible, protecting you, are godly ones. So I'm not going to comment on the list. We'll we'll look at it probably next week. But do observe chapter 3, verse 2, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, Temperate, self controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his family well and see that his children obey him. We'll see it next time, but you want those responsible for guardians, as guardians protecting the church, you want people who can manage, because okay, they can't, they can't their, their family's out of control. We'll get to it next time, but you know, it's often how you respond to crises. Um, if your family, they've got to be able to manage their family, but, but do it with gentleness. You don't want over, someone who's overbearing. You certainly don't want the bully. Again, next time we'll think. But I wonder if in the last 25, 30 years, chapter 3 and verses 1 to 3 have not been taken seriously enough in the appointment of church leaders. You want someone who is gentle, not quarrelsome, kind, beyond reproach if you're going to make them responsible for protecting the church. There have been plenty of times when the authority given to men in chapter 2 has been abused because they were functioning without the character that chapter 3 requires. Okay. Those four things, I think, summarise this text. What does it look like in practice? Because, uh, unfortunately, but it's important to recognise, there is often a difference between what a church may publicly subscribe to and how it's embodied, what it looks like. Yes, we, we, we believe in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that the guardians of the church in the public teaching should be qualified men and we honor all other ministry of the women of women, but does that happen? That's the big question. Now I think here in, in helping to work this out, it's worth distinguishing or drawing a distinction between the teaching in the public setting of 1 Timothy 2, public, authoritative, and then the teaching which every Christian does. So, Femi, we may have it. Um, for want of a better word, let me put them in sort of. Teaching and, capital letters, teaching. As I say, at the narrow end, 1 Timothy 2, and throughout the pastoral epistles here, uh, 1, 2 Timothy Titus, teaching is the teaching, and it's a defined body of knowledge that you want protected by suitably qualified teachers. Now, at the other end, every Christian teaches. We all do. So we're commanded to do it, Colossians 3, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. We're told to do it daily, <laughs> Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another. Uh, elsewhere, Paul can write to the church in Corinth, just talking about that uh, in a public meeting, women praying and prophesying, which I take it as a public word of, of encouragement in the gathered church. So all of those things should be happening, Okay. But at some point, the defining, central, guarding role of protecting the truth is limited to teachers with authority. Now, in the middle, there's a middle ground. And my main plea would be, just be generous and allow some freedom and don't be overly prescriptive in the middle ground. And lots of faithful biblical churches which subscribe to Male elders would disagree, perhaps, about how the middle gets worked out. I mean, you have to think, you've got Priscilla at Aquila, Acts 18, a husband and wife team teach Apollos, who goes on to be an apostle. But it's done in the privacy of their home. It's sort of give and take, there's conversation. Obviously, uh, elsewhere, Titus 2, another pastoral epistle, Paul would command or encourage the older women to teach the younger women. There's got to be some freedom in the middle, I'd please, uh, or my plea would be for a lack of dogmatism about what happens between those two ends. You've got to have the two ends in place. Now, how you work out the middle, I think that varies. And again, uh, we can fail by ignoring the prescription on one end that Paul gives, that authoritative public teaching is for qualified male elders, or ignore what everyone should be doing, and therefore fail to encourage the women of the church to flourish in their ministries. So again, trying to flesh it out a little bit more, hopefully this is obvious, particularly if you've been around for a while. But here, of course, we are entirely content. Uh, it's an it's a, it's a excellent thing for women to lead Bible studies, mixed Bible studies, Uh, You know, most of you, in a small group that happens up and down, uh, all over over the place, in uh, discipleship groups each and every week, on the basis, there's a world of difference between a 30-minute monologue, 30 minutes, I know, um, ish, uh, monologue on a Sunday to the whole church gathered, and a discursive discussion format of a Bible study. They're different. But here at Christchurch, the women would lead church meetings and lead music and conduct public interviews and book reviews, all sorts of things up front, seminars. Yet sermons on the teaching which proclaim the teaching on a Sunday will be delivered by the elders, overseers, or those in training to be those. And alongside that, I'd hope it just just doesn't even need to be said to anyone here. But all the blokes here, I'm sure, expect to be ministered to by the women of the church family. My own Christian life is immensely richer because of that. I mean, the women on the staff team here over the years you know, Sharon Walsh and Millie Doring, Liz Hayden, have taught me vast sums and have grown my understanding and character through working alongside them. It'd be true of many others in the congregation here. I hope you understand that there are women in leadership roles, all sorts of leadership roles at CCM. When she formally starts as Director of Operations, Roxana runs all things practical in the church. The two church wardens, legally and practically responsible, Mark and Carrie Dow, are priceless and both offer priceless contributions. So I hope you understand that, the women are involved in all elements of leadership here from that downwards. But Paul declares in line with the whole of the scriptures, that the guardians of God's house and the teaching of the gospel ultimately are to be, that's to be done by men qualified by their character. Let me just say again, how that gets worked out, how that is embodied in a church, that is absolutely key. And in one sense, then how are we doing on that? And maybe talk about that afterwards. Let me encourage you to do that. Because what does it look like? What does it feel like, a Christchurch Mayfair, for the men and women of the church? Where there are suitably qualified elders leading a church, that should be a joy. Because the Lord says it's the best way to run church. So, it should be a delight because it is cutting with the grain of creation. It requires men to grow into elders who sacrifice themselves for others, who sacrifice themselves to protect the church. Because in the end, what, what the Bible grounds in creation, Genesis 1 and 2, on the roles in a church of men and women. It is defined by Jesus. And any human elder or overseer is going to fall short, but mustn't be beyond reproach. But Jesus is always the definition and the model. And so for both the men and the women here, we have to know that. I don't know what I'd have done if I was a policeman in Uvalde, Texas. I hope I would have done the right thing. I think until you're there, you don't know. But I do know what Jesus did when facing death. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. I actually would prefer not to do this because I know what it's about to cost me. But I will. I will die. I will sacrifice my life for others. And he is the model for elders in a church family. And so for the men and the women here, if, if your elders are trying to be like Jesus, and although they're flawed, there aren't significant errors that put them beyond reproach, unrepentant patterns of sin. Then let them teach. Let them do their best to protect you with the authority that's been given to them. If they're not being like Jesus, get rid of them. But if they're trying and beyond reproach, this is the way that God says his church flourishes when suitably qualified male elders are the guardians and protect the church from wolves. But in the end, you look to Jesus. Is he the model? Does it look like him? If so, well, give thanks and keep praying it looks a bit like that. I don't think we've got it perfectly worked out because, to your shock, we're not a perfect church. But let's talk about how we can keep doing it better so that men and women flourish in their ministries as we follow the Lord Jesus. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, we pray that we would hear these words in 1 Timothy 2. We'd hear them rightly. We'd hear them Uh, imbalanced and and, and nuanced and understood in the light of the rest of Scripture, that in many ways they're absolutely consistent. Father, we pray that we could be a church which is in line with the Scripture here and where fallible but beyond reproach elders do their very best to lead the teaching of the church, to protect the church uh, against flaws, against heresy, against wolves. Father, would we be a church where men and women flourish in their ministries under the leadership of Christ? We ask it in his name. Amen.